Welcome to episode 62 of FRT, the IEF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, once again here in our Washington office. And as we adjust to the realities of the coronavirus situation, I think we might be doing a few more episodes from here rather than out on the road. And also, once again, I'm joined by my colleague Conan French. And it's a little bit of a bittersweet moment for Conan and I. We're pleased to highlight the launch of some new IEF work on digital identity, but unfortunately, we're also marking the end of a fantastic secondment for one of our other colleagues. Amin Carey has been with us for the last two years here at the IF and will shortly be returning to the commercial and international bank in Egypt. Amin has led our digital financial inclusion work stream, which he previously discussed here on FRT way back on episodes 5 and 28. And he's also led the three-part series on digital identity that we have just completed. Our previous papers looked at applications in AML and also in where digital identity can help as an enabler to promote greater financial inclusion before our final piece focused more on some of the commercial opportunities. Amin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brad. As you mentioned, it's a bittersweet moment, completion of our digital identity work. Much appreciate the time I've spent here with both you and Conan. It's been a great experience. To move on to our digital identity kind of work and highlighting the importance of it. When we set out to do the three-part series on digital identities, we were really focusing on how financial service providers can contribute to this ecosystem. We've seen different companies basically interested in the topics. So we have multilateral organizations, governments, policymakers, technology companies, all interested in digital identities and how they could contribute to this ecosystem. So what we initially tried to do is we tried to focus on the three impacts that a digital identity can have on financial service providers. And we thought um, fighting financial crime is on top of the list, followed by financial inclusion and the business opportunity of digital identities. So when we set out to write these papers, we started off with the fighting financial crime and how digital identities can help financial institutions fight financial crime. So as it stands right now, we have 2 to 5% of uh, money laundering activity being captured. And this is basically a really good opportunity um, for digital identities to set in. If you manage to digitize data sets and use different uh, data attributes to identify and authenticate people, you can improve these uh, numbers tremendously. Well, indeed, you know, some of the estimates from Interpol and Europol are even worse than that 2 to 5% range. So given the amount of money that's spent in the AML space, you know, we often hear that the, the top 10 US banks spend more on AML than the total operating budget of the FBI, for instance. It's a pretty terrible return on investment that we currently have. And, and as you say, a, a great area of opportunity to hopefully do this much better. Yes, that's true. And uh, we've identified uh, multiple areas where digital identities can create a stronger AML framework by using multiple reliable sources, for example, for authentication, using a broader data set of individuals to help identify financial crime and other very interesting findings we have in that paper. With the second paper, we focused more on financial inclusion, on how digital identities can improve access to finance and improve financial inclusion. And we set out to look at the different initiatives that are happening globally. So you have multilateral organizations coming out with ID4D or Good ID. You have technology companies, Chinese technology com companies with WeChat and Alipay entering this space. India's Adhar are leading examples of such cases. And when we set out to write this paper, Libra was um, in the news and it was taking a lot of headlines, privacy concerns of how they could come up with digital identities and, and help serve uh, low-income segments in that, in that area. So it was an important topic to kind of highlight the importance of financial service providers being into that ecosystem and providing a trust authentication uh, for digital identities. 
And we were also looking, I think, at, at the onboarding and the customer experience for these new customer segments who might not be as familiar with financial services or as comfortable going into a branch. The fact that these new digital ID technologies could help you reach them where they are today, onboard them remotely, create a user experience that's fast, easy, efficient. You know, some of the positive stories that, that come out of WeChat Pay and Alipay in China are really that customer experience of being a very fast, efficient onboarding experience, which is even more important when you're talking about customer segments where familiarity and literacy might be lower. So I think those were some key findings that we had in, in that paper. Yes, definitely, Conan. And what we uh, aimed to do with that paper also is look at the barriers to inclusion. So so we analyzed the uh, Findex data set, which is the biggest data set on financial inclusion provided by the World Bank. And some of the main barriers was um, that people who don't have a bank account don't have a bank account because they don't have enough money or it's too expensive, the distance and the documentation requirements to open up a bank account. Digital identity has a role to play in all of these, and they could substantially uh, enhance uh, the, the cost sustainability model for financial service providers and creating a more sustainable business model when serving low-income segments. I want to go on and talk more about this new paper, but before we do, we should probably back up and just clarify one of the misconceptions or areas of confusion that sometimes arises. And I left in talking about our three-part series, but before that, we actually did a primer clarifying some of the terminology, and in particular, distinguishing digital identity from, for instance, digital identification. And I was wondering if you could talk a little, little bit about that, just to clarify some of those terms and concepts before we go into some of the business opportunities that, that are now arising. So Brad, as you mentioned, digital identity is a word that's loosely thrown around. And with our primer, we really intended to highlight what we mean by digital identity to set the reader up. And I think it'll definitely be a, a good point to highlight here. So when we talk about digital identity, we, we talk about the broader digital electronically captured attributes of an individual, and that could be linked to a physical person versus digital identification. What that basically means is having a digital copy of your passport or your ID or your birth certificate. So that's more of a narrower kind of approach to it. And what we talk about when we highlight digital identity is that broader data set of digital attributes. If we carry this now into looking at the business and commercial opportunities, let's start by talking about the platform economy and customer centricity. Certainly, we see the emergence of platforms as a very common or increasingly common item in consumer finance, certainly around the world, not only from the technology companies, but also we see some of the, the major banks around the world, some firms like BBVA, Erster with their George platform, SEB, just to name a few, that have, I think, sought to get ahead of the game and build their own platforms. And I think increasingly, it's going to be vital that if you want to be a platform provider, you're going to need to be able to do digital, ide digital identity with that. But I was wondering perhaps if you could talk a bit about aligning these opportunities with the emergence of platforms and the customer-centric focus. Yes, definitely. So when we set about doing our research, we tried to map the entire ecosystem. So we wanted to see who is in this ecosystem as a stakeholder. So basically what we mapped out was you have technology companies, fintechs and, and vendors who have data sets or alternative data sets that could be used by financial service providers to help identify clients uh, more broadly and serve them better with more tailored services and products. And then you had financial service providers who served the clients in a more traditional way. When we went about the third paper of commercial opportunities for financial service providers, we tried to map out the entire ecosystem. So we tried to look at how is the customer being served at the moment by financial service providers? 
and what are the weaknesses or loopholes in that ecosystem. So we found that financial service providers currently have data on individuals that they serve but that is very limited transactional financial data. If you want to serve a customer using alternative data sets to create a digital profile of these customers, you need to have different touch points and different data sets of these individuals. And that is gathered through their daily interactions throughout their life. A lot of individuals interact using technology companies or using their touch points, uh, third customer touch points and vendors. And these are alternative data sets that financial service providers don't own at the moment. So we've seen a shift in mindset when it comes to financial service providers serving uh, new customers and existing customers in a better way in creating these digital platforms, as you mentioned. And these digital platforms, they, they act as basically data aggregators that can gather different alternative data sets from these different touch points to create a more holistic digital identity and profile of these individuals. This way, financial service providers can offer better tailored services and products at the, at, at the exactly the right time to their customers, which leads, of course, to uh, better efficiencies and uh, increased revenue and customer engagement. That last point that you just made on efficiencies, I think, was a key finding both of uh, the paper on financial inclusion, where being able to, to have low cost, uh, low overhead to serve new customer segments is important. But we think broadly, you know, as we see an industry that's dealing with uh, lower rates for longer and, and more and more pressure uh, on margins, you know, that question of these other advantages of reducing operating costs and improving risks is another key area that you've identified in this paper. Can you share some of the findings that you've identified in operating costs and risk mitigants? Yes, of course. So one of the main issues with the traditional way that financial service providers serve clients at the moment is they have a huge infrastructure, IT infrastructure um, platform that is very costly and very inefficient if you want to go into the digital era. And digital identity can help you do an electronic KYC process and customer due diligence and serve the customer through their mobile phone. This basically serves as operational efficiencies and cost reductions. When talking about, as I mentioned earlier with our first paper of, of finance, uh, fighting financial crime, if you have a digital data set to identify customers more efficiently, that reduces your risk cost tremendously. So really, you know, it's a foundational layer that starting with the customer, since that's where, you know, a lot of the journey begins. If you get the the systems and the models right there for a more efficient and effective system, you're laying a really solid foundation to build the rest of the product stack and, and lifestyle around. Correct. At the moment, a lot of financial institutions are divided into uh, products or branch segmentations within their financial institutions. And sometimes they lose the focus of customer centricity. So with digital identity, that brings the customer at the forefront where you can align some of these operational inefficiencies within an institution to really serve the customer better throughout your entire organization. So getting that digital identity layer right is really the foundation for digital transformation of the product services and the whole enterprise sort of beyond that, that that's, you've, we've identified that as a key building block and a key enabler for the broader transformation of how you're reaching and serving customers and the different products and services that you can bring to them. So kind of interesting point you made there where you, you linked it to the broader concept of digital transformation. As part of the separate series that we've been working on with Deloitte, I think it was on episode 60 recently that we talked about our first paper on digital transformation, uh, realizing the digital promise. And as part of that work, we've seen some of the differing models of where some firms are looking to transform organically or internally, others are launching new units. 
And one such interesting unit that you've touched on in this paper, I mean, is where Goldman Sachs have launched the, the Marcus Initiative, a new division separate to the existing Goldman business model, interestingly named uh, Marcus by Goldman Sachs, that uh, makes the linkage directly to the, uh, the broader corporate name. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that particular case study and the, the digital identity application there. So the Marcus case study is, is quite an interesting one. Like you mentioned, they set out doing a digital platform and they named it Marcus by Goldman Sachs. The reason they used the name by Goldman Sachs is they wanted to keep the brand recognition of Goldman Sachs as a brand associated with trust. So this is an advantage we found financial service providers have in the ecosystem. They've been trusted to deal with customer data and financial transactions over decades because they are regulated. And this is an important point in this ecosystem going forward, having financial service providers provide that kind of authentication and trust in the ecosystem. So what Marcus did is basically they set out to look at the entire ecosystem. They looked at what they could create in-house to serve customers better, what they could acquire, and who they should partner up with. So they created a different digital platform that is separate from Marcus to serve their retail customers. And they've partnered up with technology companies such as Apple, for example, which led them to gain access to over 100 million Apple users in the US, for example. And their numbers basically speak for themselves. If you look at their customer acquisition, they started off in 2016 with 200,000 customers. Now they have over 5 million customers and revenues started off at 200 million. And now they're surpassing 860 million in revenues and they have plans to grow tremendously. So the advantage of this ecosystem is you're trying to figure out what customers want and how they want it and creating a digital platform that is agile enough through partnerships and acquisitions to serve the customers faster and more efficiently is key in driving up these numbers. Another interesting case study that you referred to in the paper, it's perhaps a little bit of a futuristic or forward-looking case study, is the Open Global Trust Framework, one that our friends at Santander have been leading in perhaps leveraging the, the trust of regulated financial institutions as a means of providing the service where particular identification attributes are needed for services provided by other players, as one example, and if I'm understanding it correctly. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit further around some of the opportunities that might present. So what Santander is doing with this initiative is, is quite interesting because they're trying to get a coalition of large financial institutions together on the same table when it comes to digital identity. Like you mentioned, financial institutions do have a leverage of trust when it comes into this ecosystem. And having standards that are basically across the financial services space to enter this digital identity ecosystem is a smart way of, of doing that. Just for example, try and imagine if a customer is trying to get a senior discount on a train service, what they would need to do is hand in their identity uh, credentials to the train service provider. They need to verify that they're over a certain age, 65 uh, years, for example, in some nations, and that they're a national of that certain country. Without having to give out all of this information, what a customer can do is log in through their bank credentials on that website and the financial service provider could just authenticate that these two requirements are met or not without giving out too much information on the individual. So the financial service provider acts as an authenticator at the background, verifying important credentials without giving out too much data, which is a huge concern when it comes to digital identity is how much of your data is being shared, who's sharing it, and who can control this data. I would think also the obligations of having to, to store it. You know, if you're the train operator in that case, or for that matter, somebody selling alcohol or a lotteries provider or the like, 
you want the verification that yes, this person meets the criteria. You want the yes and the yes to the questions you might pose. You don't really want all of their date of birth, etc., data that you've then got to go and store in compliance with GDPR and the like. So I guess part of the attraction would be that the banks take care of that for you and you're somewhat absolved of that added burden, perhaps, of, of that data storage. Would that be right? Yes, that's, that's definitely correct. And I think it's a win-win situation for everyone in the ecosystem. So individuals get served better and they get control of their data. They know where their data is going. Financial service providers can serve customers more efficiently and it basically works out to everyone. And when you look at a broadening ecosystem and payments and financial intermediation sort of serving a role in that broadening digital ecosystem where, you know, in the last generation, it was kind of login with Facebook. But if you think about the capabilities that banks have built working with governments over the last 40 years of securing and really being great stewards of personally identifiable information, you know, this is a critical capability that banks have and bringing that function sort of forward while maintaining a customer relationship into a broader digital ecosystem is really a way to address two key strategic concerns that the industry has had over the last decade of how do we retain the customer relationship as, you know, transactions become a little more dematerialized, people aren't reaching into their wallets and bringing out branded cards anymore, maybe it's, you know, smile to authenticate to pay. So how do banks maintain that trust relationship that they've built up over a very long time with the customer base while serving a highly relevant role for a broader digital ecosystem? So this brings together a lot of those advantages and really helps highlight the critical role that banks serve in the economy. I mean, one final question. We'll change gears here a little bit. What's next for you? Uh, you've had a great couple of years with us here in Washington, but you're now returning back to Egypt to the Commercial and International Bank. We have to give a shout out to our great friend Hasham, the chairman there, who has been a great supporter of the IEF, not only in making you available to us, but also in hosting events for us, such as our Digital Financial Inclusion Summit last year in Cairo. But what's ahead for you when you return to the homeland? Yeah, so it's uh, interesting times. I'm going back to, to Egypt at Commercial International Bank. They're starting off uh, actually an initiative uh, of a digital platform. And for Egypt, it's kind of a different marketplace. Uh, financial inclusion is a huge deal there. We only have 33% of the population that is banked. And we have an ever-growing uh, youth population that is transacting digitally through digital bill payments, etc. What I'll be trying to do is get involved in that initiative a little bit more and try and use the digital finance experience I've gained here over the years hopefully push that forward in Egypt. Well, I hope so. And, uh, and I hope that we can continue to engage with you in your capacity at, at one of our important member firms. We're looking forward to some great case studies from you. Absolutely. Look out for that. So thanks, Amin, both for joining us here on FRT and also for all that you've contributed in your time with us here at the IF. If I can recap on a couple of the points from uh, these papers that I think you've emphasized here, the criticality of digital identity in enabling customer interactions that meet the expectations of convenience that customers might have, whilst at the same time ensuring that risk mitigants can be preserved. I think getting better at, at anti-money laundering, at combating financial crime and raising the level of illicit flows that can be captured beyond the, the pretty meagre levels that we're currently at. I think there's a great consciousness of some of the obligations around how data is managed and handled some very sensitive private data. And I think that example of, of Open Trust and the initiative that Santander has led is, is a great opportunity. And lastly, but perhaps most importantly, expanding the provision of financial services, for instance, to the unbanked, and in particular to the sections of the population and the regions where KYC and identification may have been difficult or prohibitively expensive. Hopefully this is, is one great way that, that we can all get better at that. 
Looking ahead on FRT, we'll continue with our digital transformation series with Deloitte with our second paper, which will look more at some of the success factors and enablers in overcoming the barriers and challenges that we outlined in the first paper. We're also going to be joined by author Chris Skinner, who has a new book out that actually overlaps with a lot of the findings that we've made in that digital transformation series. Conan and I will look at the anticipated relaunch of the Libra White Paper, something that we foreshadowed last week in our discussion on episode 61. And we'll also bring another Japanese language edition in the near term, something that we last did back on episode 44. Please join us again then. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.